The U.S. House will meet again today to try and elect a speaker. Republican Kevin McCarthy failed to get a majority yesterday in three separate votes. It's Wednesday, January 4th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the GOP infighting over who will become speaker. Conservatives like Florida Congressman Matt Gates vow to block McCarthy's path. This town desperately needs change, and if it's a few of us who have to stand in the breach to force it, we are willing to do so for as long as it takes. Also, why China is seen as one of the top global geopolitical risks of the new year. China is not only the most powerful it has been in modern history, but it is also now run by one man. And this hour, inflation is forcing some people who got pets early in the pandemic to surrender their animals to shelters. In sports, the Celtics lose rain this morning in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House will try again today to elect a speaker. Since Republicans hold the majority, they're expected to have enough votes to pick that person. But GOP leader Kevin McCarthy lost three rounds of balloting yesterday. And NPR's Windsor Johnston tells us the House GOP remains deadlocked. After all of the backroom negotiating and unseen arm twisting, Kevin McCarthy was unable to get the 218 votes necessary to become speaker on the first two ballots. 19 Republicans voted against him, and in the third round, that number went up to 20. The House has adjourned until noon on Wednesday, when a fourth round of voting will presumably take place. In the meantime, McCarthy's next steps in his bid for speaker are unclear. NPR's Windsor Johnston reporting, a handful of hardline Republicans are preventing McCarthy from winning the speakership. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler explains the gulf between Republicans supporting and opposing McCarthy is very visible in Georgia. There are two Georgia House Republicans playing important roles on opposite sides of the impasse. Marjorie Taylor Greene is among McCarthy's most vocal supporters and expressed frustration at the holdouts. It's not a popularity contest. It's not who we like and who we don't like because you want to know something? That is the failure of Republicans. That includes fellow Georgia Republican Andrew Clyde, a Freedom Caucus member who hasn't voted for McCarthy or indicated what would make him change his mind. So for now, Green, Clyde, and the rest of the House will try again at noon Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Washington. The former owner of a Colorado funeral home has been sentenced to 20 years in prison on a conviction related to selling body parts. Colorado Public Radio's Stina Sieg has more. Megan Hess was given the maximum sentence after pleading guilty to one count of mail fraud in the case. Her mother, who worked for the business, received 15 years. Leaving the federal courthouse in Grand Junction, Joy Christian looked relieved. The body of her father, Michael Holland, was dismembered and sold without her family's consent. I'm a Christian and I believe in forgiveness and I was willing to give that to them in the courthouse. But I won't forget. It's been a terrible terrible trauma to our entire family. A restitution hearing will be held in March. From PR News, I'm Stina Sieg in Grand Junction, Colorado. The Food and Drug Administration has decided that retail pharmacies can offer abortion pills for the first time. Patients must still provide a prescription. Meanwhile, in a separate step, the Justice Department has determined that the U.S. Postal Service can legally continue to deliver prescription abortion medication by mail. The agency says the post office can lawfully deliver abortion pills to people in states where abortion is significantly restricted. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is Charlie Baker's last full day as governor of Massachusetts. He'll take part today in a traditional symbol exchange with Governor-elect Maura Healy. Then this evening, he'll be joined by Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito for the ceremonial lone walk down a red carpet out of the statehouse. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports that Baker said goodbye to Massachusetts residents yesterday, ending what he called eight sometimes crazy years in office. Baker said he and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito leave office with a sense of love and appreciation for the people of Massachusetts, who Baker thanked for showing generosity and kindness over the past eight years. He said despite a myriad of political fights and distractions that were raging all around us, the personal and professional generosity from the Berkshires to Cape Cod and every place in between was always there. We were there too, in the front row, watching it and appreciating it for eight years cherished years. Baker took credit for a number of accomplishments, including managing the pandemic and the state's finances. His term officially ends Thursday when Maura Healy becomes the next governor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. WBUR and WBUR.org will have live coverage of Maura Healy's inauguration. Our coverage begins tomorrow morning at 11 during Radio Boston. The new state legislature will be sworn in today to begin a two-year term. However, a pair of incoming state reps won't be there. Democrats Kristen Kastner of Hamilton and Margaret Scarsdale of Pepperell will not be sworn in today. Both were declared winners of their races by just a handful of votes each. Legislative leaders say the postponement will allow elections officials time to make sure vote counts are correct. Regulators in Massachusetts are taking a closer look at rate hikes that went into effect for Eversource customers this month. The average residential customer in Massachusetts is expected to pay about $50 to $60 a month more for electricity this winter compared to last year. Eversource President James Shuckerow blames the spike on an inadequate supply of natural gas, which is used to produce electricity. Many of these pipelines were built by the natural gas companies to provide essentially residential heating. Those gas pipelines have uh, plenty of capacity during the summer months, but unfortunately, during the coldest of days, during the winter uh, months, uh, that pipeline capacity is limited. Eversource claims it is not making any additional profit from the rate hike. Eight MBTA bus drivers fired for refusing to get a COVID vaccine can apply to get their jobs back. A memo obtained by the Boston Herald shows the T has dropped its vaccine mandate. Former T general manager Steve Poftak said the decision was a response to shifting federal guidance on how to stop the spread of the virus. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by professional pastry arts at BU's programs in food and wine teaching the classic and advanced techniques behind making the perfect flaky, buttery treats. Study with world-class bakers and learn what it takes to launch a food-related career in just 14 weeks. More at bu.edu slash foodandwine slash pastry. The Celtics lost to the Thunder 150-117 to last night in Oklahoma City. The C's next game is tomorrow night against the Dallas Mavericks. In your forecast, showers off and on this morning. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy. Temperatures today in the mid-40s. Showers overnight. The low will be around 40 with a little ice possible on the roads well outside Boston. Showers again tomorrow and in the lower 40s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 708.
WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Berlin. For the first time in a century, the U.S. House began a congressional term without a speaker. More than 90 percent of House Republicans have favored Kevin McCarthy for that job. The California lawmaker has worked toward his turn for years. But a few lawmakers rebelled, enough to cause the clerk to say this three times yesterday. No persons having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. McCarthy did not even receive as many votes as Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader who received around 203. He'll try again today with the outcome no more certain than yesterday. NPR's congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us now. Hey, Claudia. Hey there. Republicans adjourned the House after McCarthy lost that third ballot. What happens now? The chamber is set to convene at noon today for more votes, but Republicans met overnight to try to hash out a way forward. But just like yesterday, there seems to be still plenty of division and little room for error. McCarthy can lose only four members of his conference, assuming everyone is there, to win the speakership. And he's lost much more than that, and his opposition seems to be growing. Some McCarthy supporters, such as Texas Representative Pete Sessions, said these losing rounds for McCarthy cannot go on forever. Even though both sides are dug in, trust me, I think somebody's going to have to say, this is starting to look bad. I mean, the good of the party, the good of the majority is what we should be about. And we should note, no business in the House can move forward. No members can be sworn in until a speaker is elected. Wow. So what's keeping that from happening? Although most Republicans support McCarthy, a conservative fringe has opposed him for years, and it even cost him an earlier speakership bid. And it seems they will not change their mind or their votes. McCarthy had already threatened to go multiple ballots if needed, but that seems to be having the opposite effect now. He lost 19 defectors in the first round, then by the last, that number grew to 20 with Florida Republican Byron Daniels. These defectors voted for Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan instead. McCarthy has been defiant about this lack of needed support, telling reporters his defectors will eventually fold and this fight is not about him. This isn't about me, this is about the conference now. Because the members who are holding out is what they want something for their personal selves. If anybody wants to earn something, committee slots or others, you go through the conference. You don't get it by leveraging it. So he's saying these defectors who've asked for more concessions for House rules, for example, to be adjusted, that they can't negotiate this way on the floor. And he thinks members will tire out over these ballots and give him the win. But it may not be a winning argument. Scott Perry, one of these defectors, said McCarthy's trying to order them into voting for him by threatening to take away committee assignments. And Perry said he does not take orders from anyone. So what's going to happen today? We'll see if there's a deal that some sort of breakthrough here with these negotiations. Ken Buck of Colorado, who voted for McCarthy, said it's worth keeping an eye now on the more senior members of the party to see if they start to pull their support. You know who the the Cardinals are. You know who the the chairs are. You know who the, the people that have been here 12, 14 years. When those folks decide that it's been long enough and we don't have any white smoke, they're gonna they're gonna start looking elsewhere. He thinks some have already told McCarthy they'll hang with him for a few more rounds, but eventually that welcome mat will be taken away. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. Claudia, thank you. Thank you much. 
Now, the supporters of Kevin McCarthy include our next guest, Representative Dusty Johnson, Republican from South Dakota. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, you must have had an interesting evening. What kinds of discussions went on? Well, I do think people want to get to yes. Most people want to get to yes. But keep in mind, Steve, that we do have a few, a small number of uh, members who they like the chaos. Uh, people like me, we I, I like order. I think we got real work to do in America. I'd like to, you know, find a resolution to this. But you've got a few who are wired differently. Well, if that is the case, that would mean that you can't negotiate with them. They're getting what they want right now. So what is your plan? Yeah, and I do think uh, those small number of uh, chaos lovers that I'm talking about, you really cannot negotiate with them. But I'm hopeful there are still 218 members of the Republican conference that understand we can't do a gosh darn thing until we agree on leadership. And uh, more than 90% of us think there's one guy who is uniquely qualified uh, to lead the group into a really fractious time. But can you talk me through the discussions of the past, I don't know, 12, 18 hours? What are ways that people are exploring to get out of this? Well, first off, I would tell you that most of the conversations of the last 12 or 14 hours are just like the conversations of the last 12 days and for that matter, the last eight weeks. They don't bear a ton of ground, but there is incremental progress inching toward agreement. And I think that should give some people some uh, sense of relief or, or some comfort that uh, we're not at total impasse. There are people who uh, are, are giving concessions. This give and take is slow. It's messy, but it is happening. Do you mean that there are some of the rebels here who you believe are moving over to McCarthy's side? I think they're open to doing that. Now, listen, there was not a breakthrough overnight. Uh, and there wasn't, uh, you know, there weren't, uh, there weren't actual concessions offered. Uh, the negotiations are not that formal, but there are people who are in a position uh, to help these these deals mature who have been talking, and and things are not blowing up. People are not entirely walked away. The lines of communication are open. I want to talk about another conceivable scenario because, of course, this is about math. You need your side to get a majority of those voting. It's conceivable that Democrats could help you if they wanted by having some of their members not vote, which would reduce the total that you would need. And McCarthy in that situation could conceivably get a majority. Would you like help from the Democrats? Well, I know this is a scenario that people bring out from time to time because, of course, it's exactly what would happen in an Aaron Sorkin movie. But it is a really hard way to govern the House. I mean, when you've got a narrow majority like this, you need a coalition that has some something that binds them together day to day other than just uh, political convenience. And, and it is hard right now in an incredibly uh, divided American time to put together in a bipartisan way 218 people who are willing to hang together, whether it's uh, economic policy or border policy or any of the other huge panoply of issues that we have to face. And in that way, a bipartisan group is just, it's really hard to imagine happening. Okay. Uh, and, and so that means you'd have to resolve it among Republicans. Would you be willing to consider a compromise candidate? Oh, I listen, I, there is no one who is even close to being able to do this job 
uh, like Kevin McCarthy can do it. And and I I just no one has brought forth a candidate that they think can do the job like he can. Now listen, maybe we get to a point where somebody other than Kevin McCarthy gets elected. I don't think that's going to happen, but it's possible. But I'll tell you, the country will be messier and the House will be more chaotic if that's what happens. One other thing, McCarthy supporters have said the critics are just objecting to object. They like chaos, as you said a moment ago. What is the principle, in a few seconds, what is the principle at stake for your side? I think there's real work to get done. And and that, that work is not going to be done easily in a narrowly divided house. And so you have to have a savvy operator. You have to have somebody who's got a passion to pull this group together so we can accomplish something. Uh, for those of us who think conservative principles have to be done, that's what's at stake. Congressman Dusty Johnson, Republican from South Dakota. It's a pleasure talking with you, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. You bet. The last surviving Apollo 7 astronaut has died. Walt Cunningham, born in 1932, flew in space just one time. As NPR's Russell Lewis reports, his flight in 1968 was an important and often forgotten one for the lunar program. Walt Cunningham was the lunar module pilot of the first manned Apollo mission that went to space. Apollo 7's 11-day trip around the Earth was the stepping stone to NASA's march to the moon. The real accomplishment, of course, was the first manned landing on the moon. But that was the fifth of what I always describe as five giant steps. The first one was the Apollo 7 mission, of course. Complete test of the Apollo spacecraft. Coming up on one minute, mark T-minus 60 seconds and counting. We are go for Apollo 7 at this time. The launch came after a difficult time for NASA. Just 21 months before, a fire on the launch pad killed three astronauts during a test of Apollo 1. In the interim, NASA changed many procedures and the command module underwent a series of safety improvements. Speaking to NPR in 2016, Cunningham said if Apollo 7 had not gone well, the U.S. wouldn't have landed on the moon before the end of the 1960s. Historically, what the public doesn't realize, still the longest, most ambitious, most successful first test flight of any new flying machine ever. During the flight, the crew test-fired the engine that would place Apollo into and out of lunar orbit, simulated docking maneuvers, and did the first-ever live television broadcast from an American spacecraft. The mission was deemed a success, but it was the last time these astronauts would fly in space. There was tension between Apollo 7's commander, Wally Schirra, and mission control. As the flight dragged on, Schirra caught a cold, and so did astronaut Don Isley, and the crew's squabbles worsened with ground controllers. Despite that, Cunningham was proud of what they accomplished. As I look back on it, it was a job, a challenge, and a task that in the end was very well done. Walt Cunningham left NASA in 1971 after serving as a manager for Skylab, the U.S. space station. He retired from the Marine Corps Reserve as a colonel and attended Harvard Business School dabbling in venture capital. He also hosted a radio talk show. Russell Lewis, NPR News.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the man who orchestrated the Varsity Blues college admission scandal will be sentenced in Boston federal court today. He made millions helping wealthy parents cheat to get their kids into elite colleges. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, understanding that now more than ever, we need the ocean and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu team. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Some environmental good news. A new analysis shows the illegal harvesting of sea turtles by poachers has been dropping. Many years ago, it used to be the only source of protein for many communities. But right now, there are more sources of protein in the world. So poaching has decreased a lot. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We have some spots of rain and fog early this morning. Later today, it'll be cloudy with a high near 46. Tonight, rain and fog again with a little ice possible well outside of Boston. The low will be around 40. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and some areas of early fog, then cloudy with a high around 40. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Nearly four years after the Varsity Blues college admission scandal, the mastermind, Rick Singer, is due to be sentenced today in Boston. Singer pleaded guilty to racketeering conspiracy and other charges for helping wealthy parents, including actors Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman, bribe and cheat to get their kids into elite colleges. As NPR's Tovia Smith reports, Singer's hoping for no prison time while prosecutors want him to serve six years. Prosecutors call Singer's scam staggering in its scope and breathtaking in its audacity. He raked in some $25 million selling what he liked to call a side door into selective universities like Yale, Georgetown, and USC. Give him the razzle-dazzle, Rick. No problem. The FBI recorded Singer selling his scam to parents, explaining how he bribes coaches to take students as athletic recruits, even in sports they never played, and how he fixes students' wrong answers on their college admission tests or has someone take the test for them. I can make scores happen that nobody on the planet can get to happen. Consider that a done deal. I agree. Of the more than 50 parents, coaches, and others caught up in the scheme, more than a third got three months or less in prison. A quarter got no time at all, including five who cooperated with prosecutors. Singer's hoping his cooperation will earn him leniency, too. He 
believes he will get some time. I don't think he believes it'll be a lot of time. Bill Blankenship lives next door to Singer in a mobile home park in Florida, a world away from the gated five-bedroom California home where Singer used to live. I've lost everything, Singer wrote to the court, pleading for no prison time, or, if he must, his lawyers suggest, just six months. Singer says he's full of shame, remorse, and regret, but he says he deserves credit for helping prosecutors nab his former clients. He secretly recorded hundreds of phone calls getting his co-conspirators to admit to paying bribes and calling them charitable donations. Definitely, I did take all three of those as write-offs. Yes, I did. I just want to make sure that you and I are on the same page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The recordings were damning enough to make dozens plead guilty in cases the government concedes would have been otherwise hard to win. Prosecutors made a deal with the devil in this case, but they always do. Former federal judge Nancy Gertner says what makes this case unusual is that the deal is not with low-level conspirators, but with the kingpin himself. I think this is an extraordinarily difficult sentencing. Because on the one hand, Singer's cooperation is enormously important, and you get people to cooperate by telling them that they will get a benefit in their sentencing. On the other hand, he's more culpable than anyone, cooperation notwithstanding. Also, prosecutors say Singer's cooperation was problematic. They say he actually tried to con them, tipping off some co-conspirators. It's partly why prosecutors are not recommending rewarding Singer's cooperation as much as they could have. I'm a little bit surprised the recommendation is pretty harsh. Especially, says defense attorney Aaron Katz, who represented one of the Varsity Blues' parents, since the government also wants Singer to cough up some $20 million. It's certainly justified, but that massive forfeiture amount plus prison, that's a very harsh punishment for a scheme like this, for sure. Authorities have said from day one their goal was to send a message, as the head of the FBI in Boston, Joe Bonavolanta, put it. You can't pay to play. You can't lie and cheat to get ahead because you will get caught. But to many, the sentences meted out so far to the mostly white and wealthy Varsity Blues defendants have sent exactly the wrong message. I'm a black man in America. <laughs> it's like, duh. Akil Bello, an advocate for equity in education, compares the Varsity Blues sentences to similar or even stiffer ones given to those who are not white or wealthy. For example, an Ohio mom who lied to get her kids into a better public school or some Atlanta public school educators who inflated test scores. To think that the sentences for those crimes should be anywhere approximating the same is insane. Also disconcerting, Bellow says, is that he doesn't see any of the enormous and systemic changes to the college admissions process that prosecutors say resulted from the Varsity Blues cases. The organization that runs the SAT test says it has increased security, and for example, USC says it's beefed up reviews of athletic recruits. But Bellow says none of that addresses the systemic legal inequities in college admissions which affect far more people than Varsity Blues. For example, schools giving a leg up to children of alumni through legacy admissions or to children of big donors. In our world, money talks. Sherry Walden-Wells, a VP with the American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admissions Officers, agrees little has changed in that realm. Very few entities are going to turn down donations especially if they're not promising something in return. 
Varsity Blues also did little to prompt reforms in the world of college consulting, which remains an unregulated industry. Margie Amet, a college counselor who knew Singer years ago, says that's largely why Singer's scam wasn't stopped when she says he first started pushing the envelope. We all knew there was just very unethical stuff going on, but there was nowhere to turn. Instead, Amit says she watched Singer just become more and more brazen. So, for instance, here's the application that was falsified. From padding students' resumes, Amit says, to lying okay. about a student's ethnicity and even trying to hire someone to take a student's course online. That made my hair stand on end. And I think he should go to prison for a long time. For his part, Singer says some childhood trauma that the court is keeping sealed caused him to lose his moral compass, and he now wants to atone by helping underprivileged students. He says he plans to start work this month with a pastor in Arkansas. A court filing from that guy says Singer first reached out two weeks ago. Still, Singer's neighbor Bill Blankenship insists Singer is genuinely helpful to him and others around their mobile home park. Blankenship shrugs off suggestions that Singer may be just putting on a show ahead of his sentencing. If he is doing all that good just to make himself look good, does that negate the fact that it was good? You know, good is good. Singer will have a chance himself today to make his case for leniency in person to the judge in what may be his most important and difficult sales pitch of a sordid career. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, analysts say China will pose one of the largest threats to the U.S. in 2023, with that country encroaching on Taiwan in the South China Sea. It's 729. If you're headed out to work or the gym or to take the kids to school, remember that you can keep listening to WBUR on the WBUR mobile app. It'll help you keep up on the news in the new year. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Lawmakers in the House are expected to try again today to elect a speaker. Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy of California says he still wants the leadership post, despite falling short in each of three votes yesterday as the new Congress convened. The GOP won back the majority in the House in the November midterm elections, but McCarthy is opposed by some conservative lawmakers. Incoming House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries assessed day one this way. Sad day for the House of Representatives as an institution. Sad day for democracy. It's a sad day for the American people. Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin remains in critical condition at a hospital in Cincinnati. Hamlin went into cardiac arrest during the first quarter of Monday night's NFL game between the Bills and the Bengals. Hamlin collapsed moments after making a tackle and was administered CPR. Ann Thompson with member station WVXU says Hamlin has been undergoing medical tests at the hospital. Hamlin's friend and marketing representative Jordan Rooney has said the hospital is doing those tests and seeing how he recovers. The UC Medical Center hasn't held a news conference or issued a statement, and we don't know when that might happen. 
Hamlin's uncle, Dorian Glenn, tells CNN and ESPN his nephew was resuscitated twice. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. More now on House Republicans' failed effort to elect a speaker. The state's all-Democratic congressional delegation voted for minority leader Hakeem Jeffries. That includes Congressman Lori Trahan. She told WBUR's Morning Edition that she believes the inability to elect a leader shows that the GOP might not be cut out to lead the House. Look, Republicans went before the American people last year. They said they wanted the majority so that they could govern. But the last 24 hours have proven that they've bitten off more than they can chew. Another vote will take place at noon today. Students and staff returned to Boston Public Schools this morning after the holiday break. WBUMAR's John Bender reports they will be encouraged, but not required, to wear masks. The masking guidance in schools comes as public health officials brace for an increase in respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, after days of holiday travel and gatherings. That's why Krista Magnuson of the group BPS Families for COVID Safety is disappointed school leaders did not reinstate a full mask requirement for the schools. And, you know, we'll, of course, we'll encourage our people that we have contact with our members to actually follow this sort of, quote, ask and expectation of masking and to do their best to do that. Because, of course, the more of us that are doing it, the more protection we'll have across the board. Boston school officials say the expectation means masks are strongly encouraged, but no one will be disciplined or sent home for refusing to wear a mask. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. Masks are also being recommended but not required at public schools in Newton, Lexington and Arlington. The Massachusetts Teachers Association wants state lawmakers to legalize teacher strikes. The union tells the Boston Globe that it believes educators should have the same labor rights as other kinds of workers. State Education Commissioner Jeffrey Riley says the union is going too far. Legislation on the issue is expected to be introduced on Beacon Hill next month. And if you got a real Christmas tree this year, you might be wondering what to do with it. It turns out many local goat farms are willing to take it off your hands. That includes Goats to Go in Georgetown. Communications Director Michelle Olson says the trees provide the goats with a fun snack and entertainment. The goats enjoy playing with them with their horns, rubbing up against the tree. They have certain tree preferences. I believe it's the Douglas fir they like more. This year, Goats to Go is accepting trees on Saturday. Olson says you need to pre-register for the drop-off, which comes with a small fee. The proceeds are donated to a local charity. In sports, the Celtics suffered one of their worst losses of the season last night. They lost to the Thunder 150-117 to in Oklahoma City. The Seas will visit the Dallas Mavericks tomorrow. In your forecast, some fog and spotty showers are clearing up this morning. It'll be cloudy today with temperatures rising to the mid-40s. Those fall to the low 40s tonight and the rain returns. The National Weather Service is warning that a little ice may form on the roads well outside the Boston area. Tomorrow, a chance of showers, otherwise over with temperatures in the low 40s. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com slash NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, 
at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Berlin. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. The year begins with even less doubt who's in charge in China. Xi Jinping installed himself for a third term as leader, dismissing a system of slowly rotating presidents. But analyst Ian Bremmer argues this seeming stability makes China more hazardous. His Eurasia group put China's leader on their list of global risks in the new year. China is not only the most powerful it has been in modern history, but it is also now run in an incredibly consolidated way by one man. So it's as consolidated a dictatorship as we've seen since the days of Mao. But back in the Mao days, horrible things that happened in China or deeply suddenly surprising things didn't have much of an impact on the global economy, on global health, on global security. That's not true anymore. So you put those two things together, maximum Xi together with maximum China, uh, and China is suddenly at the top of the list. Let's talk through why consolidated leadership would go wrong, because in theory, that sounds stable. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Almost all of the major risks on our list today are around this issue. The idea that when you have really powerful people that don't have the benefit of significant expert inputs around them, they're making decisions in ways that don't have checks and balances internally. And as a consequence, they surprise everyone with great suddenness, right? I mean, when in the United States, a lot of people were very concerned that Trump was the end of democracy. And yet we saw that when there were things that he tried to do that were really beyond the pale, he was prevented to do them by people around him that could stop him, by expert opinions that would stop him, by by checks and balances. Or just the democratic system and lawsuits and that sort of thing. Exactly. N- none of that exists in China. And by the way, a fair amount of it did exist at the beginning of Xi Jinping's rule 10 years ago, but he has systematically taken that system apart. And now everything runs up to him. How does that sudden change on zero COVID, going from that policy of trying to crack down to loosening things dramatically in a very short period of time, change the risks that you see for 2023? Well, first of all, it's going to lead to well over a million Chinese likely dying. Now, that that's frankly, believe it or not, not much of a risk because the dead don't protest. And the Chinese government isn't going to admit to these people dying. They're not going to provide data. But for example, one major risk directly that stems from this is we're just not going to have information on these new cases and therefore on any potential new variants and any potentially dangerous new variants. The hospitals are going to be overwhelmed and they're not going to be working closely with the World Health Organization, just as it's been for the last three years, or with organizations like the CDC around the world. Given that the epicenter for COVID is once again, as it was in 2020, in China, and China is the least transparent and cooperative with the rest of the world on that health data, that's a pretty big problem. Would we not assume that Xi Jinping, if he has nothing else, has competent economic managers around him who would know how to keep China's economy on course? Yes. Yes, we would assume that. But also the priority in China of ensuring that the politics are stable, irrespective of the economic hits that they take, um, has been a defining piece of Xi Jinping's rule for the last 10 years. 
So no, he doesn't have the same level of technocrats around him that he did five years ago, 10 years ago. He's not getting the same level of economic data that he used to, nor is China publishing it. And it's not clear he's listening to the few competent people he has around him. And that's, in other words, the same kind of challenges that we have now seen on zero COVID, we should expect to start seeing in the Chinese economy. A few days ago on this program, we spoke with Mike Gallagher. He's a Republican representative, head of a new House committee focused on China. And he asserted that we're entering the, quote, window of maximum danger of a Chinese attack on Taiwan, specifically because she is so much more extremely in charge. And he's a friend. I've spoken with him about this. We disagree on this specific issue. I agree that there is a growing danger on Taiwan, but I don't think it's near term. It's not in the next 12 months. Part of that is because the Chinese have seen how just how well the Americans and allies have responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so they need to sharpen their pencils, the Chinese do, on their own military capabilities. Part of it is because the Chinese really need access to TSA. SMC, the world's most strategically important company. They provide the most important semiconductors for a Chinese government and economy that can't yet produce them themselves. They are going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars in the coming years to try to make up that gap with the United States, but they're not there yet. And as a consequence, a sudden military strike against Taiwan would do incredible damage to the Chinese economy at a time that they really can't afford it. Ian Bremmer is the president of the Eurasia Group, and Maximum Xi, as he puts it, is one of the items on his list of risks for 2023. Thanks so much. Steve, my pleasure. Remember how everyone seemed to be getting pets earlier in the pandemic? Well, now some people are having to give theirs up because they can't afford to keep them. NPR's Carmen Molina Acosta has this report. Sarah Barnett runs an animal shelter in Philadelphia. Recently, she's seen hard economic times put pet owners in a tough spot. Right now, when when people are losing their jobs and having to pick between putting food on the table or feeding their family and their pet, they're, they're having to make a very difficult decision and really being left with very few options. They're not all impulse pandemic puppies either. We're seeing a lot of people in Philadelphia coming to us who do love their pet, They wish they could keep them, but they can't because they're moving in with their family members because they can't find another place to live, you know, or their family members allergic who they moved in with, things like that. About one in five households nationwide took in a pet during the first 14 months of the pandemic, according to a survey by the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Since then, the cost of pet food, vet visits, and just about everything else has gone up. Barnett's shelter picks up strays, and lately... More than half of them come from Philadelphia's lowest-income neighborhoods. It's really heartbreaking because it's easy to want to judge everybody who surrenders an animal, and everyone always says, you know, they would never surrender an animal, but these people are reaching their breaking point. You know, they're, they're trying everything they can, and a lot of people are giving them up because they literally are living out of their car, and they want a better life for the dog. Animal shelters around the country are overflowing, and there's a price to that overcrowding. We've euthanized dogs who are healthy and adoptable and treatable for space. But Barnett says there are pet pantries and other resources out there to help keep owners and pets together. And hopefully, more animals can be saved. You know, every number is a wet nose and a wagging tail, so to speak. But most of the animals are leaving our shelter and going back to their owners or going to rescue organizations or finding homes directly through us. 
Carmen Molina Acosta, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, critics say the U.S. Marines are resisting an order to fully allow women to participate in boot camp. And in our next hour, disgraced crypto CEO Sam Bankman-Fried has pleaded not guilty to fraud. In your forecast, it's still a little foggy out this morning. That's supposed to clear up soon, and we'll have an overcast day today in the mid-40s. Low 40s and rainy tonight. There may be some ice on the roads well north and west of Boston. More showers possible tomorrow, otherwise cloudy and in the low 40s. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Now in business news, Cambridge-based software company Pegasystems is the latest tech company in the state to lay off workers. The company says it's cutting 4% of its workforce around the globe. That's more than 200 people. It's unclear how the layoffs will directly affect employees in Massachusetts. Boston-area skiers will have an easier way to hit the slopes starting tonight. The T is running its ski train from North Station to Wachusett Mountain for the first time since 2020. Chris Stimson is a spokesperson for Wachusett Mountain. He says the train makes getting to the mountain a stress-free experience. If you want to get here without, I mean, without worrying about parking, without worrying about bad road conditions, you can take the train. It's also a good way to be more healthy for the environment. The 90-minute ride runs Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays through early March. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The U.S. Marines are under a congressional mandate to end gender segregation in boot camp. That would bring the service in line with all the other branches of the military. But the Marines say they do not plan to go all the way. Steve Walsh in San Diego has details. You're clogging it up! Recruits slide on their backs under Bob Wire in the dirt at Paris Island, South Carolina. Boot camp is 13 weeks of pain and suffering. Sidra Montgomery with the University of Pittsburgh said her team witnessed some of the reasons why the Marines have been reluctant to fully integrate women into this process. So there's just no privacy in that area. And drill instructors are allowed to go in and out of the head area as they please. In other services, drill instructors are not allowed to go in the head area because that is seen as a space that is used for changing and personal hygiene for recruits. Montgomery helped oversee a study ordered by the Marines to look at how to end gender segregation. The rest of the services have been training men and women together since the 1990s. While those services have strict rules that limit changing to bathrooms and shower areas, the study details how the Marines demand recruits strip repeatedly in their squad bay. Drill instructors stand in the shower, barking out the correct way to wash. You do what I say you do. When I say you do it, how I say you do it, right? That is the quintessential approach of Marine Corps recruit training. 
The need for additional privacy not only keeps male and female recruits separate, but also limits the opportunities for female drill instructors, since drill instructors also sleep in the squad bay. The 700-page report found that in the absence of women, vulgar and sexist comments were being made in front of the male recruits. To objectify women, to describe acts with women's bodily parts, um, to condone tacit violence against women. These images were even written into company training documents found at San Diego, which only began training women after a congressional mandate. Male recruits that we spoke with in the focus groups they had a recognition that this language was wrong to use around women. They didn't connect the fact that it's wrong, period. Critics say training men and women separately fosters attitudes that linger well beyond boot camp. Lori Manning is with the Service Women's Action Network, which filed a lawsuit to fully open boot camp. They're afraid that if they introduce women into some of these units, it will wreck the male bond. Whereas the other services have found out that the women blend right in and they have a band of brothers and sisters. The Marines have the lowest percentage of women of any service, Manning says. I think even though they won't come out in public and say it, I think they really don't want to go much above 9 to 10 percent of, of women in the Marine Corps. And this is the best way to make sure that happens without having to say it. Congresswoman Jackie Speer placed language in the defense bill that requires the Marines to end gender segregation by 2025 at Paris Island and 2028 in San Diego. The Marines say the law is ambiguous. They are foot dragging and, you know, violating, frankly, a provision I put in the uh, fiscal year 2020 National Defense Authorization Act that prohibits gender separated training at any level. So far, the Marines have committed to opening up more elements of boot camp where men and women train side by side, while still keeping them in separate platoons. Speer, now on the cusp of retirement, says it's not enough. Frankly, there just isn't a rational, a logical or moral reason for them to continue to fight gender integration. It's going to happen, you know, maybe only after some heads roll, but it is going to happen. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in San Diego. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, NPR continues its conversations with the authors of banned books. Today, the author of the graphic memoir, Gender Queer. And in 20 minutes, the latest on the condition of Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin, who collapsed after being hit during a game Monday. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save. Energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. It's time to play America's favorite jackpot game. The Lottery. A few big winners. Tonight we have another life-changing jackpot for you. But a lot of huge losers, including every state that relies on lottery revenue. Only 20 to 30 percent of every lottery dollar goes to the state beneficiary, to the fund. So it's a lot less than people think. Well, where does the rest of the money go? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We have some patchy fog that's still hanging around this morning. That's supposed to go away soon, and we'll have cloudy skies today 
with temperatures in the mid-40s. Tonight, low 40s and more showers. If you're planning to drive anywhere from Springfield and Worcester up to New Hampshire, watch out for a little ice on the roads. Tomorrow, there's a 50-50 chance of more rain. The high temperature will be right around 40. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 751. It's a new year and a new slate of events at WBUR City Space. Our calendar is filling up for the first few months of 2023. Check it out and get tickets by visiting WBUR.org slash events. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Maya Kobabe explores gender identity in the 2019 graphic memoir, Gender Queer. Kobabe told our co-host Rachel Martin it was centered on coming out to friends and family. So I wrote it sort of towards an audience who I knew, like, loved me and supported me and knew me and was very, like, sympathetic to me. Um, and I think that let me write with, a with like, like, without any, like, really fear. Kobabe grew up in Northern California. In illustrated panels in the book, readers learn about Kobabe feeling physically different from a young age, but unable to openly express it. The book has been praised in some circles for how it talks about identity, but it's also drawn a lot of rebuke from people who cite its sexually explicit nature and the illustrations. Genderqueer has been banned in more states than any other book. I was in elementary school in the 90s, and then I was in high school in the early 2000s, and there was a lot less representation, and there was a lot less people who were publicly out. Um, And I just felt for so many years, I was like, I I just feel like there's, there's some stuff going on with me about gender. I can't decide if I'm a girl who feels kind of like a boy or like a a gay man trapped in a girl's body or if I'm like a boy but in but in a very feminine way or like am I a lesbian it was just very confusing and I just kept feeling like I was trying on like clothes that didn't fit and it was just like it was the 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 biggest sort of concern of my specifically teenage years and early 20s was just this, like, what am I? Where do I fit in all of this? There's so many different experiences that I, as as a cisgendered woman, would never have thought about as being as traumatic as you describe them. Like the annual gynecological exam. (laughs) And this is a very graphic part of the book as you describe what this was like for you. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, It's interesting that you mentioned that you wouldn't have thought of that maybe as, as traumatic because one of the things that I sometimes hear from cis female readers is, thank you so much for writing about how kind of hard that was for you because it's also really hard for me and I never hear anyone talk about that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and I've had, yeah, readers who have never struggled with their gender or questioned their gender really relate to that part of the book and also some of the stuff about like periods and, um, you know, sort of the shame around periods and all of that stuff. 
um, is not limited to people who are questioning their gender. But yeah, the pap smear exam scenes, there are two of them in the book. They were hard to write. Those were the kind of the only scenes that when I sat down at my desk to draw them, I was like, I don't want to like have to live in this memory again mm. for the amount of time it's going to take me to draw these pages. This is a, this is an unpleasant experience to be reliving this. Mm-hmm. I mean, half of it's kind of like psychological. Like I don't enjoy being reminded about this part of my body. And half of it is just literal physical pain. You tell the story of a family that's very supportive mm-hmm. of you and your journey. There's this scene, though, where your aunt, who happens to be a lesbian, is mm-hmm. having a hard time with the idea that you are non-binary and the fact that she needs to use different pronouns with you. You know, she was the first person I really knew very closely who was out as queer. So when I was coming out as non-binary, I assumed like, okay, cool, of all of my extended family, she will get it the most. She'll immediately support me. She'll immediately have my back. And then that ended up not quite being the case. But I think part of it was that at the time that she came out as a lesbian feminist specifically, it was a real turn towards women, towards womanhood, towards centering women as sort of the most important relationships in her life, both romantic, but also sort of like political. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm voting as a woman. Mm -hmm. I am moving through the world politically as a woman. And I think the idea that I was doing a thing that to her felt like a rejection of womanhood Mm -hmm. was really, really difficult because she felt like women are like the best thing in the entire world. (laughs) And being a woman is very joyful and celebratory and wonderful and has brought me friendships and community and family and, you know, very important things into her life. Um, And I think when I was first coming out, I wasn't saying womanhood does not have value or womanhood is not like worthwhile and wonderful and important thing to be and to celebrate and to find strength in. I was just saying like, this is a very beautiful gift that has been offered to me, but it doesn't fit. And because of that, I'm going to set it down. Did you anticipate the level of ire directed at your book? I braced myself for a little bit of that. But when the book came out, like what it was met with initially was just this absolute wave of like love and support. And the pushback didn't come until late 2021. And at that point, I think what mostly surprised me was like the timing of it and then also the level of it. And then following that, the longevity of it. Let me ask you this. I mean, some of the criticism is about how explicit the book is. There are some graphic panels um, Mm. where you're describing some of your sexual encounters. Did you consider doing less graphic versions of those scenes just to not give grist to the critics who you anticipated were going to come at you anyway? You know, I really didn't. Like, I drew it. I drew as much as I felt like I needed to tell the story that I was trying to tell and get the points across that I was trying to make. And I honestly think the book is a lot less explicit than it could be or would have been been if written by a different author. The topic of gender touches on identity and touches on sexuality and it touches on all of these things. And it's hard to fully explain, I think, what, like how a gender identity can impact every facet of life 
as an adult without touching at least a little bit on sexuality. And so I wanted to not like shy away from that. Maya Kobabe is the author of the graphic memoir, Gender Queer. Maya, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you for chatting with me this morning. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steve Inskeep. An overcast day in the mid-40s today. Tonight it falls to the low 40s and the rain returns. Watch out for a little ice on the roads in central and northern parts of the state. Tomorrow a good chance of more showers along with temperatures in the upper 30s and low 40s. Friday may start with a little snow, then rain likely with temperatures rising to around 40. It's 40 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hard-right Republicans rejected Representative Kevin McCarthy of California in three votes for House Speaker yesterday. Lawmakers reconvened today to try again, and McCarthy isn't backing down. It's Wednesday, January 4th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we talk with Massachusetts Democrat Representative Lori Trahan about what it was like on the floor during the Republican infighting. Also, there's been a huge outpouring of support for Buffalo Bill's safety. Damar Hamlin, who remains in critical condition after taking a hit during Monday night's game. He's someone that like sacrifices his, however he feels in that moment to make everyone around him feel welcome, uh, which is something you don't get a lot of times with professional athletes. And this hour, former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried has pleaded not guilty to fraud in charges related to the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. In sports, the Celtics lose rain this morning in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy remains optimistic that despite several losses yesterday, he'll still pull out a win for the speakership. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports McCarthy hopes to overcome his deficit when the House convenes this afternoon. Leader McCarthy is still facing opposition from a sizable group of House conservatives who are looking to thwart his speakership bid. But after losing three rounds of ballots on the House floor, McCarthy told a pool of Capitol Hill reporters that he thinks members will tire out during future votes. Members are talking. We're uh, walking through. I think we'll find our way to get there. And uh, this is a healthy debate. It might not happen on the day we wanted, but it's going to happen. The stalemate means for the first time in 100 years, the U.S. House will begin a congressional term without a speaker, putting all of its other business on hold, including the swearing in of new members. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. Washington. President Biden will visit Kentucky today to talk about infrastructure. He'll also announce more than $2 billion in investment to upgrade a vital bridge. Biden says that's thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law. The president will be joined by other officials, including Senate Republican leader and Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell. 
Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin remains in critical condition in a Cincinnati hospital. He collapsed Monday during the Bills game with the Cincinnati Bengals. Hamlin's heart had to be restarted and he remains sedated. An online toy drive that Hamlin founded with a modest goal of about $2,500 has now garnered about $6 million in donations. Family spokesman Jordan Rooney says he is looking forward to sharing the news with Hamlin when he is awake. Knowing what it means to him, um, it makes me makes me proud. It makes me excited for, for when he will see that. Meanwhile, the postponed game between the Bills and the Bengals has not yet been rescheduled. Russia says that 89 of its troops were killed in a Ukrainian missile strike on a military barracks in occupied East Ukraine last weekend. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. This is the single largest loss of life Russia has reported since the start of the conflict. The revised death toll was confirmed by a Russian defense ministry spokesman who said the remains of more soldiers had been found in the rubble of a school building in the Ukrainian town of Mikivka the troops had been using as a temporary base. The spokesman said the attack occurred because the soldiers had violated military rules and placed cell phone calls to Russia as the New Year struck, allowing Ukraine to pinpoint their location using American-made HIMARS rockets. The defense ministry initially acknowledged 63 men had died after pro-Kremlin war correspondents leaked details of the incident Earlier this week, mourners gathered for impromptu vigils in several Russian towns where most of the soldiers who died were from. Ukraine has taken responsibility for the attack, but claims the real Russian death toll could be in the hundreds. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Today is the last full day in office for Governor Charlie Baker. He'll take part in a traditional symbol exchange with Governor-elect Maura Healey. Then this evening, he'll participate in the ceremonial lone walk down a red carpet out of the State House. But he really won't be alone. He'll be with his wife as well as Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito and her husband. We'll have live coverage tomorrow of Maura Healey's inauguration. It'll begin during Radio Boston at 11. Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll will be sworn in as lieutenant governor tomorrow. After giving a final address to the city council today, Driscoll will oversee the process of the council appointing her replacement. Councilors tell the Salem News they hope to hold an election in May with the winner serving the remaining three years of Driscoll's term. Somerville's new mayor is promising new teen centers, arts spaces, and a universal basic income pilot program in the new year. Mayor Katiana Ballantyne gave her first State of the City address last night. In it, she praised the city's progressive and inclusive spirit. In a time when so much feels turbulent and when once-in-a-generation challenges face us, I am forever grateful to serve a community that holds steadfast to the common goal of progress for all. Valentine was Somerville's first new mayor in 18 years when she took office last year. The state's highest court today will hear a case linked to the deadly COVID outbreak at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home. The state attorney general's office is appealing the decision of a lower court to toss out criminal indictments against the former superintendent and medical director of the home. They were accused in the spring 2020 outbreak that killed dozens of veterans at the home. A judge dismissed those indictments in 2021. After more than five years of work, the dedication of Boston's public memorial to Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King is now days away. WBOR's Dan Guzman gives us an update on the embrace. The 20-foot-tall statue on the common features two arms locked in a hug. 
It honors the Kings, who met in Boston in the 1950s. The plaza surrounding it has markers paying tribute to dozens of other New England civil rights leaders. Amari Paris Jeffries, the executive director of Embrace Boston, says visitors to the memorial can enhance their experience with their phones. They'll be able to download an app and hear the stories of those other leaders, hear the stories of the Kings, hear the stories of Boston, past, present, and future. The official unveiling of the Embrace will be held Friday the 13th. That's three days before Martin Luther King Day. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. No wins in the new year yet for the Celtics. They lost to the Thunder 150-117 to last night in Oklahoma City. The Celts will visit the Dallas Mavericks tomorrow. Showers off and on this morning. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy today with temperatures in the mid-40s. Showers overnight. The low will be around 40. Showers again tomorrow and in the lower 40s. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Berlin. Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin remains in critical condition in a Cincinnati hospital after he collapsed during Monday night's NFL game. People held a vigil last night outside the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Fans also gathered at Highmark Stadium, which is the home venue of the Buffalo Bills, Hamlin's team. Hamlin tumbled down after he made a tackle during Monday night's game as people across the country watched on TV. Ann Thompson of WVXU in Cincinnati has been covering this story. And do we have any new information about Hamlin's condition this morning? We don't know much beyond the fact that he suffered a cardiac arrest following the hit. Crews did CPR to restore his heartbeat. The hospital sedated him and intubated him, meaning he has a breathing tube and is on a ventilator. All mm. this so doctors can do a battery of tests. Hamlet's friend and marketing representative Jordan Rooney has said the hospital is doing those tests and seeing how he recovers. The UC Medical Center hasn't held a news conference or issued a statement, and we don't know when that might happen. So Hamlin's family issued a statement thanking supporters during what they call the challenging time. What kind of reaction has there been there in Cincinnati? There has been an outpouring of support. Even people who don't follow football have had something to say, wanting the Hamlin family to know they're thinking of him. The city has been lit up in the Bills' colors. Dave Bush, who attended the game, said the collapse was eerie and shows how dangerous the game can be. In sports, everyone looks at the contracts and how much these professional athletes are getting paid and things like that, but they don't understand the other side of it. And this is when you see the other side, unfortunately, which is the dark side of this game. Don Bird, who had watched the game at home, was out eating lunch with his nephew at a sports bar. He said he was really shaken up when he saw Hamlin drop to the ground. God bless him. I hope hope all is well with him. You know, I mean, who would have thought? A routine play. And his nephew, 11-year-old Jeremiah Engels, said he was glad to see the teams come together. And it just shows that on screen they may like act like they hate each other, but really they actually might be good friends in real life. And people nationwide have come together, donating money for Hamlin's Chasing M's Foundation, nearly $6 million for a toy drive. The goal, 
was 2,500. Wow, there's so many people trying to process this. You, you know, the NFL announced that the Bengals-Bills game would not be rescheduled this week. Obviously, whether a game should be played again or not pales in comparison to the importance of Hamlin's condition. But for the NFL, where does this leave the rest of the season and the playoffs? Yeah, so in the Bills-Bengals games, they were playing for first-round buy and home-field advantage. The NFL has said that the game is not going to be played this week. Uh, but at this point, fans seem more interested in the health of DeMar Hamlin. And uh, as you had mentioned, that they have been holding vigils outside the hospital. That's Ann Thompson of member station WVXU in Cincinnati. And thank you. Thank you. Within seconds of his collapse during Monday night's NFL game, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin was being treated by medical personnel on the field. On game days, each NFL team has several medical staff on site, including dentists, paramedics, and neurotrauma specialists. They're trained to respond to any injury that can happen in a game. Dr. Robert Litton spent nearly 10 years as a field physician for the Baltimore Ravens. He's now the chief medical officer of Howard University Hospital, and he joins me now. Dr. Linton, good morning. Good morning. So as a former NFL physician, was there anything that stood out to you when you saw DeMar Hamlin collapse? Yes, absolutely. It was a very uh, seemingly routine play. And if he had gotten up from that play and went back to the huddle, I don't think there would have been much thought about it. But what stood out to me was once he collapsed, the speed at which the medical team were able to get to him and the early recognition of the situation was, uh, from what I know, uh, appeared to be very good uh, response time. And let us know, how, how crucial are those moments when a player collapses like that right after that, that happens uh, for, for medical staff? Yeah, it's critical. And I, I would say that for uh, better outcomes, timely recognition of a cardiac arrest is key so that you can uh, provide early CPR and ultimately defibrillation to really uh, give the player the best chance of survival in these types of e events. And so what are the priorities of the medical team on site once they reach the player in that situation? So absolutely priorities are going to be uh, recognition of uh, is the patient uh, does they have a pulse? Are they uh, moving? Sometimes there can be seizure activity, but the priorities are definitely going to be the airway, making sure uh, that the patient is breathing. And uh, you worry about their, uh, did they also sustain a cervical spine injury at the same time? So you really right. want to be mindful of uh, the actual hit and, and uh, the nature of it. And what kind of preparation or, or plans are in place for these types of incidents from the medical staff person, uh, perspective? Yeah, great question. The uh, preparation includes drills in the off-season to really uh, be able to effectively manage a, a rare but high-stakes, uh, high-consequence event like this. Uh, player uh, drills uh, and uh, Simulation. So that's interesting. You, 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 you all do all like you'll do regular drills. Yeah. I mean, how, how, how yeah. often do you do that? Yeah, at least two to three times in the off season. Uh, hmm. uh, and that would be very important because when you don't have a, an event like this occur very often, it's very uh, challenging if you don't approach it that way. And so with the stakes being as high as they are, uh, drills become uh, 
very important because you can really dive into the nuances uh, at that particular stadium and go through the different scenarios uh, which you may you know want to anticipate uh, prior to uh, any any game or any uh, situation like this. That's Dr. Robert Linton. He spent nearly 10 years as a field physician for the Baltimore Ravens. He's now chief medical officer of Howard University Hospital. Thanks so much, Dr. Linton. You are welcome. Thank you. As recently as November, Sam Bankman-Fried supposedly ranked among the world's 100 richest people. Now, after the collapse of his cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, he faces criminal charges that, if he were convicted, could carry sentences of up to 100 years. NPR's David Gura watched his appearance in court. His signature look is a T-shirt and shorts and a curly, unkempt quaff. At Sam Bankman-Fried's arraignment on Tuesday, his hair looked the same, but he was wearing a suit and tie. The hearing was a media spectacle, with dozens of reporters filling the jury box and several rows of seats. It seemed everyone was there to hear Bankman-Fried enter his plea to eight criminal charges. Not guilty. That was expected. And James Park, who is a professor at UCLA Law School, says it's probably because Bankman-Fried really didn't have a better option. I think it just means that he hasn't been offered a plea deal yet. And Park's not sure that if Bankman-Fried were to be offered one, he would take it. He may decide it's worth the risk to go to trial. And by pleading not guilty, Bankman-Fried will learn more about the government's case against him. Bankman-Fried is accused of orchestrating one of the largest frauds in history. Billions of dollars have disappeared. And it's estimated there are more than a million creditors, including many FTX customers, hoping to get their money back. But Bankman-Fried's defense got more challenging recently. Two top executives in his crypto empire pleaded guilty. and They agreed to cooperate with prosecutors. But even with their help, this is an enormous undertaking for the government. They have to collect and process hundreds of thousands of documents. Sorting through this whole mess is going to take a lot of time. Almost a year, as we learned on Tuesday. Judge Lewis Kaplan set a start date for a trial, October 2nd, which Park says should be ample time for prosecutors to put together their case. I think it's a reasonable timetable. I think that they'll have to move very quickly and they'll be working very hard pretty much every day to get this done. Even still, a lot can happen between now and October. Federal prosecutors are encouraging other former employees of FTX and its affiliated companies to come forward. So we're at the beginning of what's bound to be a long saga. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Bird watchers are flocking to a house in Southern California to see a rare bird of It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Chris Spurgeon is with the Pasadena Audubon Society. I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be able to see one in 70-degree weather standing on a suburban street in my shirt sleeves. Yeah, he drove to Orange County to see the wild snowy owl, which, as the name implies, is normally found in the Arctic. The owl stands two and a half feet tall, and its wingspan is five feet. This is a large, majestic animal, and it's absolutely unmistakable. It it, it has these bright white feathers flecked with little bits of of brown in them and these, these piercing, piercing yellow eyes. It's a stunning, magnificent animal. And it's a mystery how this snowy owl ended up in Southern California, thousands of miles away from its habitat. But there are theories. I like the idea that it landed on a cargo ship and just kind of relaxed and had a nice uneventful cruise into Los Angeles and then 
hopped off the ship and, and has started to try to make a living here in L.A. Could it have been attracted by the glitter and glam of Hollywood? Harry. Happy birthday. Harry Potter's feathered friend Hedwig is a snowy owl. Spurgeon says if Orange County's snowy owl decides to stay for a while in California, it should have no trouble finding food and making it through winter. Maybe you know next spring it'll, it'll get the urge to migrate north. For the time being, this visitor from the Arctic seems perfectly happy in sunny Orange County. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the United Nations says it could happen any day now. India will surpass China as the country with the largest population in the world. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Some environmental good news. A new analysis shows the illegal harvesting of sea turtles by poachers has been dropping. Many years ago, it used to be the only source of protein for many communities. But right now, there are more sources of protein in the world. So poaching has decreased a lot. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The official dog of the Boston Marathon will be honored today with a portrait of himself. Spencer the dog is a golden retriever known for holding the Boston Marathon flag in his mouth and greeting runners along the route in Ashland. Besides getting to see the portrait, Spencer and his humans will also get a commemorative medal from last year's race. In your forecast, we have some spots of rain and fog still happening this morning. Later today, it'll be cloudy with a high near 46. Tonight, rain and fog again with a little ice possible well outside of Boston. The low will be around 40. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and some early areas of fog, then cloudy with a high around 40. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. Dataiku.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. This year, somewhere in India, a newborn baby will mark a milestone. The United Nations says India will soon overtake China as the world's most populous country. Many of the beneficiaries of this population boom will be women. 
whose life decisions are shaping their country's future. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports. Inside a tiny one-room apartment on Mumbai's northern outskirts, 24-year-old Naina Agrehari is singing a racy Bollywood song. Baba Black Sheep. But she jokes she should probably learn Baba Black Sheep instead because she's nine months pregnant. Naina is part of a massive Indian migration out of rural agricultural areas and into cities. She moved here more than a decade ago and will be the first in her family to give birth in a hospital rather than at home. Her child is more likely to be healthy, to speak multiple languages and to travel. Out of country, like education. I want him or her to go abroad and to study medicine, says Naina, already grooming a little overachiever child. She and her husband actually don't know the baby's gender. Ultrasounds to determine that are illegal in India. Because people abort baby girls, especially in rural areas, she explains. The government has launched a campaign to combat that, called Betty Bachao, Betty Padao. Save the daughter, educate the daughter. And that's rubbed off on Nina's family. Her mother, who has a sixth grade education, moved the family to Mumbai in part so that her daughters could have careers. By profession, I'm a financial consultant, uh, like dealing with all types of loan products. Nina started her own company and will return to paid work outside the home after a six-month maternity leave. She also had a love marriage, which is still a rarity in India where most marriages are arranged by families. So this is a video that Nina made of her own wedding. And Nina also wants only one or possibly two children, not five like her mother did, or six like her grandmother who never went to school. A girl who studies up to 12th class has lesser number of children than a girl who is not literate. Demographer A.L. Sharada says population growth slows and becomes more sustainable only when you empower women. And that is India's biggest challenge, she says, especially in these massive, crowded cities. This is one of the busiest lanes in Dharavia, bustling slum in Mumbai. And right in the middle, there are trays with fruit, sweet ladus, and there's a tiny woman with a massive belly. It's a baby shower. The family are South Indian migrants, and like so many people, they've come here to, to give birth in the big city. They are coming here for their livelihood. Vanita Vitalsonde is a social worker who goes door to door offering prenatal care to women who often don't know they need it. Many are migrants from rural areas who arrive here pregnant and anemic. They are not getting the proper diet, but they are still doing better in Mumbai than their native place. That's why they come. Ah, that's why they come. Yeah, do you want to sit here and I'll yeah, across from her and I'll sit next to her? Yeah. Together we visit one of her clients, Shabana Khatun, whose apartment is so tiny it barely fits four of us sitting cross-legged on the floor. Shabana has one malnourished child and she's pregnant again. I ask how many children she plans to have and she fiddles with the bangles on her wrist. As many as my husband wants, she says. A few weeks later, I go back to see Nina, the financial consultant, who's just given birth to a baby boy named Vehant. 
Her mother is helping her take care of him. And together, while cooing over the baby, the two women marvel at how it's only recently in their family that women could choose how many babies to have. <laughs> One is enough. <laughs> I don't want this second baby. Nina says her birthing experience was painful. Her baby was hospitalized for 10 days with a blood infection. She shudders to think what would have happened had he been born at home, like all of his ancestors before him. Instead, little Vihant will grow up in Mumbai, in a new generation of Indians, in the biggest country in the world. Let's stay in Mumbai with NPR's Lauren Freyer there. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Rob. So the world's most populous country will soon be India. That's going to be difficult to get used to after China held that position so long. This is a big deal for India, right? It's a really big deal. Yeah, India celebrated its 75th birthday last summer. This country has gone from being impoverished by British colonial rule to 75 years later, a significant regional power with a massive population of 1.4 billion people. And by the way, that's just an estimate because we actually haven't had a census here since 2011. But we know this population is growing fast. More babies are born in India each year than anywhere in the world. And more of them are born in cities than ever before. Places like Mumbai, where I live, population, who knows, 25 million plus, probably more. The future is these big Asian megacities that are bases for booming technology, constant construction, commerce, and growth. China is definitely home to a lot of those, but increasingly, India is too. And those, that fast growth also brings some problems you know, associated with that smog and growing economic inequality. And that was a source of embarrassment for China when it held this position. You know, I'm wondering, is population growth a good thing or a burden for a country of India's size? It's both. Um, I spoke with the India representative for the UN's Population Fund. Her name is Andrea Wonar. And she says Indians are living longer because of advances in healthcare and medicine. That's a great thing. Also economically. Because as a youthful country, with the largest number of young people anywhere in the world, there's a huge potential to tap into and to enjoy greater economic growth and development. She says India has this demographic dividend, a huge workforce now. And the challenge going forward is to create jobs for all of them and build infrastructure to support such a huge population. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer, Mumbai. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, an interview with outgoing Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass, who says the political divide in the U.S. is being exaggerated. It's 829. And as you're headed out the door, keep in mind that you can keep listening to WBUR on the WBUR mobile app. We'll keep you company on this gray Wednesday morning. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Be enchanted with awe-inspiring music by Beethoven and Mozart, Friday and Sunday at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Lawmakers in the House are expected to try again today to elect a speaker. NPR's Lexi Schapittle says Republican Kevin McCarthy of California fell short in multiple votes yesterday as the new Congress convened. McCarthy failed to win the needed votes on three ballots, as 19 and then 20 members of his own party rejected his candidacy. Congressman Pete Sessions, who voted for McCarthy, described the process as an internal tug of war. At some point, somebody's got to face up to, even though both sides are dug in, trust me, I think somebody's going to have to say, this is starting to look bad. McCarthy has pledged to remain in the race. Lexi Schapittle, NPR News, The Capitol. Some conservative lawmakers oppose McCarthy as speaker, saying his legislative priorities don't align with theirs. Republicans won back the House in the November midterm elections. Actor Jeremy Renner remains hospitalized in Nevada with serious injuries after authorities say he was run over by his snowcat tractor on New Year's Day in several feet of snow. We do not believe Mr. Renner was impaired at all, and we believe this is a tragic accident. That's Washoe County Sheriff Darren Balaam. He says Renner was trying to free a family member's stuck vehicle on a private road near Lake Tahoe when the accident occurred. Renner owns a home there. This is NPR News. The National Weather Service says more rain and heavy snow will be moving into areas of California over the next couple of days, raising the possibility of renewed flooding. Prosecutors in Massachusetts want Rick Singer to receive six years in prison when he's sentenced today in federal court. Singer was the mastermind behind the college admissions bribery scandal that resulted in the arrests of dozens of wealthy parents and athletic coaches back in 2019. NPR's Tovia Smith in Boston says defense attorneys argue Singer should do little to no time in prison because of his cooperation. Singer pled guilty in 2019 to helping wealthy parents cheat their kids' way into college by pretending to be athletes or manipulating college admissions tests. Prosecutors call the scam breathtaking in its audacity, but they also concede that Singer's help was key to nabbing dozens of co-conspirators, which makes sentencing a hard call, says former federal judge Nancy Gertner. On the one hand, people who cooperate tend to get the benefit of less time, On the other hand, he was the hub of this conspiracy, so he's responsible for way more than any individual. So far, the longest sentence among the Varsity Blues defendants is two and a half years. Most served a few months or no time at all. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston. Dow futures are up 142 points ahead of the open on Wall Street. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state education department is proposing a temporary adjustment to public schools' accountability targets for measuring pandemic learning loss. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, education officials say the goal is to create rigorous yet realistic standards. State education leaders say they're trying to account for the fact that some schools lost more ground than others in the three years since the pandemic began. They're proposing a sliding timescale for how long schools have to catch students up, based on the declines recorded from last year's state standardized test. That idea made several members of the State Board of Education uncomfortable, including Trisha Canavan. I'm very concerned about having these two parallel tracks for different groups of kids. I'm concerned about the equity impacts. 
Outgoing Education Secretary Jim Pizer suggested maintaining similar standards around early grade reading while keeping other recovery areas in the staggered time frame. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Crime fell in Boston by a little more than 1% last year as compared to the year prior. Preliminary police data show the drop includes a decline in shootings. However, there was a rise in the number of fatal shootings. Last year, 33 people died from gun violence. That's eight more than the previous year. Former State Representative Sean Dooley is clarifying why he abruptly resigned last week. The Republican from Rentham says he's accepted a job with the Civil Service Commission. Dooley's time in the legislature would have ended yesterday even if he hadn't quit. He didn't run for re-election and lost a bid for the state Senate. It's 834. The Celtics fell to the Thunder 150-117 to last night in Oklahoma City. It's only the third time in Celtics history that a team has scored 150 points on them. The Seas will visit the Dallas Mavericks tomorrow. In your forecast, it's still foggy and spots out across the region. That should dissipate soon. Then it'll be cloudy today with temperatures rising to the mid-40s. Those fall to the low 40s tonight and the rain returns. It may get cold enough for a little ice on the roads north to the north and west, well outside of Boston. Tomorrow, a chance of showers, otherwise overcast with temperatures in the low 40s. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Berlin. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. As a new Congress began yesterday, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass said goodbye. The Republican retired from the Senate at age 50. His relatively short career in Washington covered a lot of history. In 2014, he was one of the newly elected Republican senators who captured that body from President Barack Obama's Democratic Party. Obviously, Republicans had a good night, and they deserve credit for running good campaigns. Sass was known as a Tea Party candidate then, sharply critical of Obama's policies. He later criticized Obama's successor, refusing to endorse Donald Trump in 2016 and voting for his impeachment after Trump tried to overturn a Democratic election. You don't lie to the American people, and that's what's been going on. The, the American people have been lied to, um, chiefly by Donald Trump, and lies have consequences. And those consequences are now found in, in five dead Americans in a Capitol building that's in shambles. That was one of several interviews the senator gave on this program over time, where he critiqued Washington as dysfunctional and devoid of ideas. Now he becomes president of the University of Florida, and as he prepared to leave the Senate, he came back on the line. Sass recalled work he had done that was outside of the news, like a group studying cyber warfare. That work focused on the future, and it was modeled on meetings from the past, U.S. strategy sessions early in the Cold War. 
when Eisenhower became president in early 1953, obviously we had won World War II um, having to use nuclear weapons, but we didn't have clarity about offensive and defensive doctrine. And so what we tried to do is use the commission that Eisenhower stood up in 1953 as an analog for the new era of asymmetric cyber war. We don't have offensive doctrine. We don't have defensive doctrine. We don't have human capital. We didn't have sufficient strategy. So we put together a 9-11 style commission of 14 commissioners that met for two and a half years. And I think that the things like the White House now having um, a national cyber office that helps coordinate strategy across all federal agencies, but also with the private sector is a pretty key way that we've been transforming the nature of how we fight the next generation's war. Is that the side of the work that you preferred as opposed to what made the news? Oh, by far. Um, the Senate Intelligence Committee is the most important committee in the Congress, I think, by substance, but it's also one of the only functioning uh, committees in the Congress. Mostly it's because we meet in a bunker and there aren't cameras present, so there's no reward for people being jackasses. So that that's a positive, but it also is kind of a cautionary tale about how little of the institution functions well in the places where cameras are ever present and therefore people are preening like they're you know 14 year olds desperate for attention i don't want to suggest that we all agree on most things because i think as a country we generally don't but do you think the blue versus red divide is overdrawn non-existent what's the word for it um, it's radically overdrawn and overstated. I think we're a bell curve country um, on most issues. The overwhelming majority of Americans are moderates on politics. Now, again, I don't mean chiefly in terms of their policy preferences. I mean chiefly in terms of what role they want politics to play in life. They have a sort of one or sometimes two cheers for politics view of life. They're almost no one normal is a three cheers for politics kind of person. And yet the loudest people on the right and the left who get all the attention right now are all people screaming that the end of time is going to come if somebody wins an election that doesn't share their tribal policy preferences at the next November. And the vast majority of the American public doesn't believe that. There are a number of Republicans specifically in recent years who have left their seats and while doing so have said in one way or another, I don't feel like this party is my party anymore. Uh, it doesn't seem to stand for what I believe I should be standing for. Are you one of those people? I think both of these parties are very small minority parties right now. What we have is a world where we're getting a lot more information from a lot of places. When we went through, I'm the son of a football coach. Uh, so when we went from three to four channels, getting an extra college football game on Saturday was pretty great. But when you go from four channels to 1,500 or 2,000 channels, what happens is there are no large outlets left anymore. Everything is narrow and deep, doing audience service and doing confirmation bias. And so you have lots of politicians that are confused that they might actually represent lots of people when these legacy brands, Republican and Democrat, are really sort of smoking old fumes. Okay, so let me ask you a trick question now. You're leaving the Senate and becoming the president of the University of Florida. Are you leaving politics then? <laughs> uh, I have had many colleagues tell me that uh, though I'm not politically addicted, I must be a glutton for punishment going to a uh, sometimes much more political job. I think that the University of Florida is just a spectacular institution, and this is a glorious moment in that state. So I'm a historian by training, as you know, Steve. 
um, teaching history seminars again is going to be great. Um, but as somebody from the breadbasket of the world, getting to be at a land grant institution um, that does just amazing stuff in ag and coming ag tech is pretty exciting. There are 67 counties in Florida, and in two thirds of those counties, agriculture is the number one economic driver, and the University of Florida is the most important institution in all those counties. So I'm, I'm super excited about this. The trustees who hired you said you had a, quote, bold vision for higher education. What is it? That we ought to think that um, people coming of age ought to be able to appreciate lots and lots of different debates and perspectives. It's uh, you and I have been talking a lot about the divide between pluralism and political zealotry in America's public square. But on our campuses, we often do the same thing now, which is we try to equate speech that you might differ with as violence. That's fundamentally anti-American. Um, we try to say that we need to create safe spaces for people. No, we don't. We need to create spaces where we respect each other so much and we believe so deeply in human dignity that you want to understand people who have different perspectives than you do. Are you saying that if someone comes to speak at the University of Florida and you're told this person is an extremist or just a political provocateur, you're going to say, let them speak, argue with them? I think you know pretty well, Steve, that I don't have a lot of tolerance for political provocateurs, um, but the range of debate that should happen on a campus should be a lot more interesting than it is right now. You mentioned the frustration with people and the way you use the language, I presume you mean people on the left who try to create safe spaces or equate speech with violence. On the other side, of course, there are government officials, including in Florida, who have tried to crack down on what they see as critical race theory or define as critical race theory. Do you expect professors to advance ideas at your university on society, on race, even on the economy, regardless of where that goes? I advance ideas is sort of an interesting verb, I guess. Um, I, what I want is the students who graduate from the University of Florida to have wrestled with a whole bunch of different ideas that they didn't already have when they got there. And they should come from all over the political and philosophical spectrum. Education properly understood um, isn't primarily about transmitting information. It's about learning how to humbly and meaningfully engage ideas you didn't already hold. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, it's been a pleasure talking with you over the years, and good luck on your new job. Let's keep talking. I'd like that. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we talk with Massachusetts Democrat Representative Lori Trahan about the stalemate over the House speakership, what may happen today, and the impact it'll have on Massachusetts. Overcast today in the mid-40s, low 40s, and rainy tonight. More showers possible tomorrow, otherwise cloudy and in the low 40s. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Now in business news, a Natick IV pump manufacturer is paying nearly half a million dollars as part of a legal settlement. The suit claims Zeno Medical knew its devices were defective as early as 2015. The company admitted that it sold faulty equipment before issuing a recall. It didn't pull them off the shelves until 2016. 
A developer wants to build apartment buildings on the parking lot of the South Shore Plaza Mall. The proposal includes a 315-unit apartment building and another nearly 200-unit building for residents 55 and older. The company tells the Boston Business Journal 10 percent of the apartments would be income-restricted. Needham-based Grillo's Pickles is in a bit of a pickle. Sorry, we couldn't resist. Grillo's is suing Hingham-based Wahlburgers for claiming its pickles have no preservatives. Grillo says the Wahlburgers pickles do have preservatives and saying there aren't is false advertising. Grillo's is asking the court for damages and an injunction. No comment yet from Wahlburgers. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Members of the U.S. House will try again today to elect a speaker. Republican Kevin McCarthy of California failed yesterday to get a majority on three ballots because a small group in his own party blocked his nomination. For more on what it's like to be inside the House during this historic stalemate, we're joined by Massachusetts Congresswoman Lori Trahan. Good morning, Congresswoman. Good morning, Rupa. So nothing like this has happened in a century. People are using words like chaos to describe what's going on inside the Republican Party. Is that what it felt like? Did it feel tense? Absolutely. Uh, It's, um, it's, uh, you know, there's there's no gloating. Uh, And, you know, there were reports that Democrats would have, you know, popcorn as they watched the dysfunction and the chaos uh, ensue on the on the other side. And, there's genuine worry uh, about what this means for the 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 House of Representatives and how it will function over the next uh, two years. I mean, the message from the American people this past November was clear. They want Washington to work for them. But like I said, in the past 24 hours since Republicans took control of the House, they've spent every minute looking out for themselves. We could have voted for a speaker and moved on to the people's business, but instead, Republicans have wasted an entire day fighting with each other, and truthfully, there's no end in sight. Uh, And so families here in Massachusetts and in every state across our country deserve better than that from their representatives. And hopefully this is a wake-up call uh, to House Republicans. Yeah, that being said, what is the role of Democrats in this? Minority leader Hakeem Jeffries has said Democrats are not going to help out Republicans sort out their mess, maybe by throwing them a few votes. What do you think about that? Look, this comes down to the math. Uh, there are 222 House Republicans and 212 House Democrats. Uh, the GOP has the majority. They went out and they asked the American people to entrust them with this power. Uh, so, you know, it's really on the Republicans on moving on from, uh, you know, their either their current slate of candidates who have proven incapable of securing the 218 votes um, and and putting, you know, a path forward so that we can move on uh, today. I mean, I'll tell you, Democrats are united uh, around Hakeem Jeffries, uh, and he, re- he received 212 votes in three rounds of voting, and it's because he represents our values, uh, and we, we want to continue the work that we accomplished these last two years. And frankly, that work that uh, worked across the aisle and got bipartisan 
legislation across the line, bipartisan infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act. We passed the PACT Act for service members exposed to burn pits. We got addiction and mental health care legislation done. Uh, yeah, sadly, Kevin McCarthy and his leadership team worked against most of those pieces of legislation. And so, look, the Democrats have already proven that we are willing to work across the aisle. Um, it's whether Republicans are going to be willing uh, to meet us halfway. So what do you think is going to happen today? Well, that is the uh, that is the question. Um, uh, you know, I don't I've heard differing reports uh that, you know, they, the Republicans are going to, to stick with this, even if it takes days. Uh, as you know, this does come down to mouth. Uh, I haven't heard any breakthroughs uh, that happened overnight uh, on securing more than the 202 votes that Kevin McCarthy received yesterday. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens at noontime today. Um, but, you know, like I've, I've, I've said, um, you know, there is important business that we need to take up. The House needs to function. We need to swear in members. We need to get our committee work done. We need to do our work on behalf of the workers and the families that we represent. And every day that we spend wasting uh, over this inner turmoil of the Republican conference is a day that we're not working for the American people. Massachusetts Congresswoman Lori Trahan, thank you so much for speaking with WBUR's Morning Edition. Thank you, Rupa. This is 90.9 WBOR. Coming up, after trying for two decades, U.S. regulators say they now finally have access to the financial audits of Chinese companies. And then on the BBC at 9, a closer look at the controversial visit by a far-right Israeli minister to the Temple Mount, or Noble Sanctuary, in Jerusalem. It's being condemned as a provocative move. It's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. And Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit eversource.com. 2050 is the global deadline to get to zero emissions. Feels like a long way away, which creates a policy challenge. You almost couldn't design a worse fit for our underlying psychology or our institutions of decision making. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. How to get our brains to focus on climate goals now. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Cloudy and in the mid-40s today. Tonight, low 40s and more showers. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston at 852. When Southwest went south, the latest chapter today. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses with customizable coverage options as unique as your business. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. I'm David Brancaccio. A passenger is suing Southwest Airlines, saying he got no refund after his flight was canceled during that Christmas operational meltdown. Now, that suit could snowball into a class action, even as the airline tries to make amends. Marketplace's Nova Safo is following this. 
Yeah, David, this lawsuit was filed in federal court in New Orleans, and the passenger suing is accusing Southwest of breach of contract because he says he was initially offered only credit for a future flight instead of a refund. Now, we first heard about this last week as Southwest was struggling to get back to normal operations. There were reports that many passengers had trouble getting quick refunds, had trouble getting someone from Southwest on the phone even because the airline was overwhelmed by its operational struggles. In a letter last week from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to the airline, he said Southwest must provide refunds under the law, seven days if paid by credit card, 20 days if paid by other means. So we're now past that seven-day mark for a lot of passengers who had their flights canceled last week, and that could be up to a million people by one estimate. We'll have to see if it goes forward how many people this lawsuit might potentially apply to. million. Now, Southwest says it is processing refunds. What else? Yeah, on Southwest's website, passengers can fill out an online form to request a refund. The airline says it will also pay for reasonable expenses, such as hotel stays, meals, ground transportation. It's also giving passengers who were stranded 25,000 frequent flyer miles as compensation. And those miles, according to the airline, are going to passengers on canceled or significantly delayed flights between December 24 and January 2nd. All of this could cost the airline quite a bit of money, David, anywhere from about $300 million to up to $700 million. Nova, thanks. I just checked, and those 25,000 Southwest points will get you one way from New York to Cleveland over the Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend, but it won't get you back, which is too bad because Cleveland has some great museums. The first day for stock trading in 2023 was a fizzle. The Nasdaq index yesterday fell eight-tenths of a percent. The Dow was down slightly. This morning, Nasdaq futures are up seven-tenths percent. Dow and S&P futures are up in the three to four-tenths of a percent range. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. In recent weeks, U.S. regulators have gotten much better access to the auditing of Chinese companies. These firms have been threatened with banishment from U.S. stock exchanges unless systems were made more transparent. I'm joined by Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack now. Good morning. Morning, David. Why do U.S. listed Chinese companies need to open their books to U.S. regulators? So any company listed on U.S. stock exchanges must do so. It's under the Sarbanes-Oxley law, which was passed in the early 2000s, after a number of big U.S. companies collapsed, including Enron. Now, American regulators want to inspect not the firms themselves, but their auditors. Specifically, they're looking for the working papers that lay out the steps these auditors took to prove or to verify the financial statements of these Chinese firms. The U.S. companies have to do this, as do foreign firms from other countries. Why have Chinese companies avoided this kind of scrutiny for, I think it's two decades, it looks like. Yeah, for two decades, because China's government says that this could leak state secrets. The issue, of course, is their definition of state secrets is pretty broad. I mean, you can see this would be bad for investors, and there's a high-profile case that illustrates this. So there's a Chinese coffee chain called Luckin, which was billed as the high-tech Starbucks killer. Uh, It listed on the Nasdaq in 2019. But just one year later, it admitted to faking more than $300 million in sales. 
So, in a sense, a bid to stop another Luckin situation. U.S. regulators certainly think so, but some analysts we've spoken to says it might not, because any company, especially in Luckin's case, that had actively tried to defraud investors might still slip through the cracks. Okay, so now U.S. regulators can inspect the books of Chinese companies. Why now? Well, the U.S. Congress passed a law in 2020 called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. It says firms cannot trade on the exchanges if they don't comply with U.S. audit rules three years in a row. A number of Chinese firms failed in 2021, but then they complied late last year. And beyond that, what did regulators find? The Public Company Auditing Oversight Board, or the PCAOB, they sent people to Hong Kong. And randomly selected two auditors, according to the PCAOB chair Erica Williams, they had reviewed working papers of Chinese firms, including large state-owned enterprises and issuers in sensitive industries. Now, these are firms that China's government had denied access to in the past, but this time the PCAOB says it had unfettered access. Okay, so there was the threat that Chinese companies that don't shine some sunlight into their auditing practices might get delisted. From U.S. stock exchanges, does this now remove the threat of delisting? Not entirely. It just means the clock is reset. The PCOB is already looking to set up more inspections in the new year. Here's the chair, Erica Williams, again. If at any time we are not able to be allowed access for any reason, we will act swiftly and immediately to reassess our determinations. And she says their staff found numerous violations in these Chinese companies, which they say is common in countries that have never undergone a PCAOB inspection. But they won't be releasing their findings until later. Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack, thank you. Thanks, David. And could you imagine a memo that got you out of a quadrillion meetings at work? Fortune magazine has seen just such a memo to employees at the e-commerce platform Shopify. All recurring meetings with more than two people at Shopify have been canceled from now on to give people more time to do rather than to talk about doing. As for big non-recurring meetings, there can only be one a week on Thursdays, and Wednesdays from now on at Shopify have to be totally event-free. The company has about ten thousand employees. Can you run a company with a lot of remote workers without those meetings? Well, we'll keep an eye on Shopify's profits and let you know. I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. This is ninety point nine WBUR. An overcast day today in the mid forties. Tonight it falls to the low forties, and we may get showers overnight. Tomorrow a chance of more showers, along with temperatures in the upper thirties and low forties. Friday may start with a little snow. Right now it's forty one degrees in Boston. We're coming up on nine o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, we look at 2023 through the eyes of history. What can the tea leaves of 2022 teach us about what we should expect this year? A panel of some of our favorite students of history join us to reflect back and look forward. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.